Well, good morning, Arbor. Good to see you. Hey, I, uh, I stand before you today, not just as your uh, pastor, but um, as a prophet. Uh, last week, we talked about texts, and I said, if you got a text from the President of the United States, <laughs> would you read it? How many of you read it? Come on, baby. That was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. So last week, if you missed it, we started this series called Text, and, uh, and we talked about the fact that we have a problem. In fact, we have some sort of condition. Um, we're conditioned, actually. Uh, and, and when we hear this sound, this little, this little vibration noise right here, uh, we are compelled, we are, um, we are conditioned, if you will, trained to check our text. There it is. That's the sound right there. When we hear that, it's just there's something inside of us. We got to get on our phone. We got it doesn't matter if we're in a, a meeting, if we're in a conversation, if we're in church or at the, you know, our altar on our wedding day. We've got to read our text, right? And we always read our text. We talked about that. The language that we use Um, We don't ever say the words, did you read my text? We say, did you what? Get my text. And the reason you say, did did you get my text, is it's understood. It's assumed that if you got my text, that meant you read my text. Because we always read our texts. Uh, You've never heard anybody say, I got your text, but I didn't read it because I don't like to read. Right? You've never heard that. Unfortunately, with that being said, there is a very similar excuse I have heard a bunch of times when it comes to a very important text. God truly has sent us a text message that he wants us to read. And when we get a text on this, we read that thing no matter what it is. We just, we read it. But for some reason, we don't read this text all that often, right? This book, sadly, is often revered, but very rarely read. Yet Jesus himself says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so last week, I had a very simple, clear goal. I literally wanted you to, I wanted you to grab this, find one. We typically have one, and I want you to find it, dust it off, crack it open, and just read your text. Just read the book that God has given us to read. And so bottom line, this thing is important. This text is important. And we owe it to ourselves, do we not, to read it for ourselves. And so that was last week. Last week was week one of a four-part series. Um, Two weeks from now, we're going to do the fourth part. I'm excited for this. Uh, It's going to be entitled Questioning the Text or Questioning the Book, if you will. Professor Wally Kowalski is coming straight back from Indonesia. He was, uh, he was a professor for um, 30 years at Northwest University. He taught theology. And he's going to come in, and what we're going to do is we're going to ask him questions. I'm just going to sit down, and I want to ask him your questions. And so there is this number right here on the screen. It's going to be up every, for, from now until the end of this talk. And so anytime you have a thought or a question that you thought, oh, I want to ask um, somebody who may know um, the answer to this question, you could text that real time. Questions like, does the Bible contain errors or, you know, contradictions or discrepancies? And if so, what do you do with that? And so that will be two weeks from now. We will be able to sit down with Professor Wally, ask him your questions. And so go ahead and text in at any time. I don't mind whatsoever. Uh, What we have next, next week we're going to do studying the Bible, studying the text. And the idea behind that is we're going to walk through a proven method of Bible study. 
And then not only are we going to walk through it, then we're going to hand it to you. And we're going to say, here's a proven method, uh, grow tools that will help you to grow on your own outside of Sunday mornings. And we're going to hand that to you. And that will happen next week. Today, I'll just shoot straight with you. This is probably to me Trusting the text, trusting God's word is probably the most important, most significant, critical talk out of this entire series, because here's why. I have a concern, and my concern is this, is that things have changed. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, this book, it was, uh, it was no longer, it was, it's not viewed the same as it was when I was a kid. It used to be when I was a kid that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the what? The Bible tells me so. And this book was commonly, almost universally accepted as truth, without question. That's not the case anymore. There are people with lots of questions about this book, bringing this book into questions. People have been asking some fact-based questions about this book, and we have been giving them faith-based answers. And so truly, it's completely understandable why this amazing book over time has been dismissed as fiction or folklore or, or fantasy, or it has no real relevance to our lives today. I can see how they get there, but it breaks my heart. And so if that's you, and I just described your story, and I just described, hey, that's how I think. I have questions about the validity of this book. I'm so glad you came today. You picked literally the perfect day to come to church, and I applaud you for not blindly rushing into something that is so important, because there is a lot at stake here if this thing is true. There is a lot at stake here, and it's wisdom. I think it's good wisdom to look before you actually leap. And so today's question is, can we trust the text? Can we trust the Bible? And so obviously I'm a pastor, so you think it's, it's pretty clear where I stand on this. Um, I think that you can trust this, but here's what I'm going to do today. I'm not going to give you faith-based answers to fact-based questions. We are going to, it's going to be different today. We're going to look at the facts. And when I'm done and when I'm finished, I think the evidence will be absolutely overwhelming that you could trust this book. Little warning as we do this. You got to listen carefully today, all right? No daydreaming. No counting the wood rounds behind me, okay? <laughs> no online shopping while I'm preaching, because if you zone out, even for a second, even for a little bit, you might get lost. And that's not because you're not smart. It's because what we're covering is a lot and it is complicated, and I am going to go, 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 go through it. I'm not going to stop. It's just going to be straight from a fire hose today. And so there's going to be a lot of information I'm going to cover, and some of you, you're going to want to write that down. Let me give you a suggestion in the beginning. Instead of writing it down on a piece of paper, take out your phone and take a shot of the screens as we go through them so that you would have that information as we go along. So today is going to be go, go, go. It's going to be a little bit different, but I think it's going to be awesome. And for some of you, here you go. This is super important. I think it's going to make all the difference in the world. And the reason I think this will make all the difference in the world is not because what I, that I'm preaching, not that, because of the content that we will be flying through can give you back the assurance that you lost or maybe even the assurance that you never had that this book, that this text, and the God that it describes is worth building the foundation of your life upon. And so we're going to dive into this thing. But let me pray first because I truly think today what we're talking about is so important. So let's pray. God, we need you here right now. 
And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be present. And as you say in the book of Revelation, give us ears to hear your message today. God, unloose my tongue that I may be able to speak clearly. Speak to our hearts, not just to our heads. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's do a quick overview of the Bible, just kind of a a synopsis, if you will. The word Bible comes from the Latin word biblia, which means books or collection of books. So the Bible isn't just a book. It is actually a better known as a library of 66 books, all different types of literature. You've got poetry, prophecy, letters, narratives, biographies in there. In fact, one of the most common errors that I see when people read the Bible is they read it from one side to the other with the same set of lenses or the same filter. The Bible is made up of different literature, so you have to read it as such. You would not read your grocery list with the same eyes or the same filter that you would read a love letter that was written from somebody that you love. Same with the Bible. When you have different types of literature, some passages should be taken literally, some figuratively. Some are prescriptive, some are descriptive. And how you read the Bible greatly determines on the book that you're actually reading or the passage that you're reading at that time. There are lots of books. The oldest one is uh, the books of the Pentateuch written by Moses. These are the first five books of the Bible written in 1445 BC to our best approximation. Uh, The most recent book is the book of Revelation written by John in 96 AD. Here's what's nuts about that, you guys. That is a span of 1,500 years. 1,500 years. The Bible started 1,500 years and then moved over, and then at the end, we ended with John writing the last book. There are 40 different authors, 40 different writers throughout this. There's kings, priests, prophets, shepherds, soldiers, fishermen, disciples, apostles. There's a tax collector, and there's even a doctor that spent time writing in this book. Here's what they wrote. Here's what they documented. They documented wars, heroes, villains, angels, demons, tyrants, giants, underdogs, Romance, sex, betrayal, miracles, murders, famine, and droughts, and a big flood that covered the whole entire world. There is a fire that came down from heaven, and then there's water that came from wine. At one point, there was a bunch of men who ate fish for breakfast, and then at another point, there was a fish that ate a man for lunch. It's amazing. The writers write and they tell us about people that are turning away from God and people are turning back towards God, people who are turning the other cheek, people who are turning their sticks by throwing them on the ground into snakes, people who are turning into salt themselves because they didn't do what God asked them to do. There is waters that part, bread that multiplies, storms that seize, chariots that fly, walls that fall, hope that dies, and love that is restored, and there's even a donkey that talks right? And it's not the one from Shrek. It's another donkey. You guys, you've got to read this. This thing is insane. It's amazing. Probably the biggest miracle about this book is that it tells one harmonious story, right? There's 40 different authors that span over 1,500 years. They, most of them don't even know each other. Uh, they're from different backgrounds, different educations, and yet it tells one harmonious story in two parts. There's the Old Testament, and then there's the New Testament. A better um, language to use there is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Testament slash Old Covenant is the story of God and his people, or his chosen people, the Israelites. It's the history of their world before Christ came. 
The New Testament is the history um, of when Christ did came. So when he was on this earth and then, you know, shortly after. And it tells the story of God and his relationship to all of mankind. And that includes us. And I get it. It's a text message from God. And it is a long one. And I get that it's confusing. But it is special. It is the best-selling most quoted, most published, most circulated, most translated, most influential book in the history of the world, in the history of mankind. No other book, you guys, comes even close. Because the Bible is more than a book. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to hold it up to the light, and we're going to examine it. We're going to put it underneath the microscope, and we're going to put it through a variety of tests. Just a couple tests, three tests to be exact. Here's what they are. We're going to go through the manuscript test, the internal test, and the external test. And we're at the end of it, my goal is to prove to you that you can trust this book on fact and fact alone. So let's start with this, the manuscript test. This is the main question for the manuscript test. How do we know what we're reading today is, um, is actually what was originally written? Like the very first time, when Peter wrote things down, when John wrote things down, when Moses wrote things down, how do we know what we're reading today is actually what was originally written? Because the Bible is written and made up of manuscripts. And if you know what a manuscript is, it's any surviving handwritten copy of an ancient document that predates in the invention of the printing press in 1455. So that's what a manuscript is. And when I went to college, this fact shocked me like no other. I found out that we do not own any of the original manuscripts or any of the original writings from Peter himself, from John himself, from Moses himself. What we have is we have copies of those originals. We have copies of those. They made copy after copy, and we don't actually have the original. So that brought into my mind, holy cow. I had doubt at that point. If we don't have the original manuscripts, how do we know right? That the Bible is accurately recorded. And that's where the manuscript test comes in. We start with quantity, okay? The quantity of the copies that we have. There's various writings that happened around and during the time of the Bible. These are the best comparisons that we have to the Bible at this point during this time that were written. Julius Caesar wrote the Gaelic Wars, and we have 10 copies of that. We do not have any of the originals, we just have 10 copies that were made of the originals. Plato wrote the Greek philosopher, and uh, we, have, uh, we have seven copies of that. Tacitus wrote the annals, and we have 20 copies of that. Suetonius wrote the life of Claudius and Caesar, eight copies of that. Homer, I like this, Homer hit a home run with the Iliad. Um, he got 600, we have 643 copies of the Iliad. Let's just look at the New Testament in comparison to those. The New Testament, in comparison to that, we have 24,633 copies. And the next comparative that we have is 24,000 less than what we have in the New Testament. That's just the New Testament, you guys. That doesn't even include the Old Testament. What does that prove? It proves that we got a bunch of copies is what it proves. And here's what's good about that. It means we have a lot of evidence that we can test. And so let's look at accuracy between those 24,633 copies. Here you go. You would think 
that the accuracy over time would lose. It would fall short, kind of like a photocopy. You take a copy of a photocopy, and it becomes less clear. And another photocopy of that photocopy, less clear. Uh, it's like the telephone game, right? We've all played that. You come up with a phrase like, Jake's wearing a really nice shirt today. Don't you like Jake's shirt today? So we pass it along. Don't you like Jake's shirt today? Don't you like Jake's shirt today? And eventually you get to the end, and the message is no longer the same. It's like, Jake likes rice from Bombay. I don't know. It's just some other thing. Over time, we assume that the message was unintentionally altered through the transcription from copy to copy to copy. But we need to look at the accuracy between the 24,633 copies. Here's what it is. It's astounding. We have a 99.5% accuracy. Guys, that's not photocopying. That's scribes writing it down. 99.5. The 5% discrepancy, just so that you know, is misspelled words or words in reverse order. That's what those are. That's amazing. That's ridiculously amazing. And so how is that even possible? Well, the scribes who would copy down the Bible or copy down the scriptures were meticulous. They truly believed that they were handling God's very words, so they took great care of making sure it was exactly the same. In fact, they could not write a letter, not a word, a letter, not a phrase, a letter down without referencing back to the copy that was in front of them. And then they had these crazy systematic ways in which they would count letters, not words, count letters down there to make sure that we have the same amount for each and every book. They would count paragraphs, words, they would even count the letters. Uh, they wanted it to be perfect and they did an amazing job. They took it so seriously that they would not use a new pen to write the word Yahweh, God's name down, in fear that it would blotch on the first time. So they used an old pen. And if the king came and talked to a scribe while he was writing the name Yahweh down, he was to ignore the king until he was done writing down Yahweh's name. They took their job seriously. And so what does this mean? It means that what you are reading is reliable. It has been taken care of. And bigger than that, what you read today is what was originally written. And so here's the next natural question. How do we know what was written actually happened? Because that's important. We could write down folklore. We could write down fiction. How do we know what was written actually happened? The answer to that question is in the time span. The time span between the, the originals that were written, when Peter first wrote down his letters, right, all the way up to when we have our first copy. So let's look in comparative sense from the books that we already looked through. So let's start with Julius Caesar and the Gaelic Wars. That was originally written, to the best of our knowledge, from between 100 B.C. and 44 B.C. That was when it was originally written. And then... All the way up to 90 AD is where we're, 900 AD is where we have our first copies. Guys, that's a difference of 1,000 years. 1,000 years, okay, between original and first copy. Greek philosopher is a difference of 1,200 years between original and first copy. The annuals is 1,000 years, years between original and first copy. Life of Claudius and Caesar, 800 years between original and first copy. The Iliad, 500 years. He's doing good. Homer's killing it. All right, 500 years between original and first copy. For the New Testament, again, just the New Testament alone, the difference between 
Original and first copy, 25 to 35 years. Guys, that is ridiculous. Not, I mean, I mean ridiculous. I mean ridiculously amazing. Do you know what that means? It means that legend didn't have time to enter in. A lot of people will pick up the Bible and go, well, that's just a bunch of legendary fictional folk stories or whatever. There was no time for legend to slip in. That's 25 to 35 years is our best estimate on that. So what that means, what, what does that prove? It proves that what was recorded actually happened. And here's how we know. Because when these manuscript copies were around and first circulating, the people who saw Jesus, walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, were still alive. And if those statements or claims inside of those documents were false, somebody would have said something. Somebody would have stood up and said, hold up, that's not true. But guess what? Nobody did that. Nobody fought that claim because they were there to testify that this is true. And so that leads us to logically conclude that what was recorded actually happened. You guys, that's insane. You're looking at me with this blank stare like, what the heck? That's ridiculous. That is amazing. The manuscript test passes with flying colors because of our quantity of copies, the accuracy of those copies, and the very short time span between when they were first written and when we actually have the first copies. And that, my friends, is just the first test. Let's move on to the internal test. The internal test is this question. Does the Bible, does the Bible provide proof within itself? Get that this may be or it appear to be a circular argument, you know, asking, using the Bible to prove the Bible. But here's why we're doing it is because inside the Bible, the authors used truth statements. And if those don't come out to be true, then the Bible is false. But if they come out to be true, then that adds to the validity and the evidence that the Bible is a true document. And so let's look at the first one and the biggest one, fulfilled prophecy inside of the Bible. Whether you know this or not, the Bible is stuffed with hundreds, I say it again, hundreds of detailed prophecies about people, places, events, and here's a great thing, that actually came true, that they were fulfilled. Now, for time's sake, we cannot go through the hundreds of them. So let's focus in and center around some of the ones that are stuck with Jesus, okay? Um, these are the prophecies that were made in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. So here's what it said. It said who, this Messiah would come, would be a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Judah. They would have lineage in, in, from David and his house. That he would be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, perform miracles, rejected by his own people. It even discussed when he would die, and it also discussed how he would die, and that he would be raised from the dead. Friend, this is just a tiny sampling, okay? That's just a few of the 300 messianic prophecies that were talked about about Jesus. That's crazy. Now, just for fun, I just want to pull out eight of them. Just eight of those promises of the Messiah to come. And I want to use the science of probability and explain to you the chances of one man that could fill just eight, not 300, just eight. And for one man to fill eight of these prophecies, catch this, is one in 100 quadrillion. 
quadrillion. That is one with 17 zeros that follow. 17. To give you a better perspective, here you go. Take the state of Texas and pretend that you fill it with quarters, two feet deep, all the way covering the entire surface of Texas. The whole entire thing. And then at that point in time, what you're going to do is you're going to take one quarter and you're going to paint it or scribble it red. And you're going to throw it inside of the state of Texas with all the other zillions of quarters. And you're going to mix it around. And then you're going to put on a blindfold and you're going to walk out into Texas wherever you want to go. You get one shot to reach down and pull and grab the quarter. And if you selected the one that was painted red, you would have got a one in 100 zillion zillion chance of getting that. Isn't that crazy? That was the chance of Jesus just fulfilling eight of the prophecies. And there were 300, over 300 messianic prophecies about him. On top of that, there's hundreds other prophecies that have been fulfilled, such as nations and wars and events and leaders and all kinds of stuff. How is that possible? Look at what Peter wrote. He said this, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative, meaning they didn't make it up. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Here's why it's significant. The fulfillment of these prophecies is compelling evidence that these men or these prophets spoke with aid. Someone was telling them what to say, an all-knowing, all-powerful God. It is the same God who is written about in this text. That's awesome. That is amazing. And that's just prophecy. Let's go to another internal test. One of my favorite, it's called embarrassing content. I'll explain. Here's what I'm talking about this. The authors of the Bible, they were painfully and ridiculously forthright about their failures, their weaknesses, and their sins. Over and over again, the writers avoided the temptation to put themselves in good light or paint themselves as the hero of the story, which is naturally what humans do when they're making up a story. Okay, they may not be the heroes, but they're not going to make themselves look bad. But the authors of the Bible who wrote God's word don't seem to be making up a story. Otherwise, they would have left this stuff out or they wouldn't have shared it. Now, does this prove that the Bible is trustworthy? No, it does not. But I think this transparency strengthens the case that the Bible appears to be an honest work. And that the authors appear to care, catch this, more about what actually happened documenting what actually happened than making themselves look good. Otherwise, they would not have included things like Noah getting drunk, Abraham lying, Moses um, murdered a man, he mur murdered an Egyptian. The Israelites rejected God over and over and over again. David not only committed adultery, then to cover it up, he murdered someone. That is the man after God's own heart, by the way. Jesus called Peter Satan. The disciples argued about who's going to be the greatest. Um, when the disciples, Jesus needed them, they stayed asleep. They were sleeping, right? And then all of a sudden, the guards came, and Peter cuts off a guy's ear. I mean, this is nuts kind of stuff. Eventually, Peter denies him three times, once in front of a little girl, and then Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. 
You guys, I could go on and on about this, but let me ask you a question. Do these inclusions sound like the words of men who were lying? They do not. And this, if this evidence, if you add this evidence to the fact that these men imparted the highest standards of conduct the world has ever seen through the Bible, the case only gets stronger. And you guys, I could walk through more internal categories of evidence, okay? We could talk about the remarkable consistency of the Bible. We could talk about the scientific forthright, our foresight that it talked about when it comes to the sun and the moon and, um, and the stars and the, and the planet. We could talk about the eyewitness accounts that are all over the Gospels. And we could talk about the testimony of Jesus that he has pertaining to the Old Testament. But that is enough for today in the internal test. Let's move towards the external test, the test that most people would like to hear about. Here's the question. Is there any non-biblical evidence to support the Bible? Any evidence outside of the Bible that supports its validity? And the answer is there's a lot. And so here you go. First one is extra biblical writers. There are, this is amazing, this is my favorite one. There are 30 non-biblical historical sources that speak about Jesus within 150 years of his death and resurrection. 150. Just to name a few, there's Cornelius Tacitus. He was a Roman historian. There's Gaius Suetonius. He was the chief secretary of the emperor. There's Flavius Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. There's a lot written about Jesus, 30 non-biblical historical sources. To give you a perspective, Tiberius Caesar, the Roman at the time when Jesus was alive, only has 10, count them, 10 non-biblical sources written about him, and he was the emperor. Jesus was a carpenter, and he has three times the amount written about him outside of the Bible during the same time. And so, what do those, and this is my favorite part, what do those 30 sources outside of the Bible, I'm going to take the Bible. We're not quoting from the Bible. We're setting it right there. Here's what those 30 sources have. If we could exclude the Bible, what do these non-biblical sources say about Jesus? Here's a summary. Here's what we know. One, Jesus lived. People believed he was a savior. People believed he was God. He did miracles. He was arrested. He died from crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. He was buried in a tomb. He rose again three days later and then appeared to a bunch of people. And eventually he ascended into heaven and he did promise that one day he would come back. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? But you need to understand that is not from the Bible. That's from other writers within 150 years of Jesus' death. That is crazy. That is insane. I think that's amazing. That is a mammoth of evidence that supports the validity of what's actually written inside of here. Let's talk about everybody's favorite, archaeological evidence. Contrary to popular belief, there have been thousands of archaeological discoveries in the past century that verify the historical reliability of this book right here. Thousands. Nelson Gluick is considered to be one of the world's most accomplished, most admired archaeologists next to Indiana Jones. 
And he appeared on the cover of Time magazine, and this is one of the things that he said. He said, no archaeological discovery has ever overturned a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And, this is crazy, by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions have often led to amazing discoveries. We can't look at a thousand, so let's look at just a few. The House of David inscription, this is why it's important. There was a problem. For the longest time outside of the Bible and outside of writings, there was no archaeological evidence that, that David actually existed. Right? And so skeptics were quick to jump and dismiss David's stories as invention of imagination. Well, that changed in 1993 when a 3,000-year-old inscription on a stone up that said House of David. Where did they find it? Smack dab in the middle of Israel. Friends, this was a huge discovery because it verified that outside of the Bible that David was an actual historical Figure. And in light of this discovery, Time magazine stated, the skeptics claim that King David never existed is now hard to defend. Pontius Pilate. This is a Pontius Pilate inscription. The problem again was that there was no archaeological evidence that Pontius Pilate actually existed outside of scripture and other guys' writings. Until, catch this, 1961 when a team of Italian archaeologists uncovered a limestone block beside the Mediterranean Sea. I guess it was right on the beach. They just wiped it off, and it bore this Latin inscription, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. So not only did this stone date back to the first century, but it verified, this is crazy, Pontius Pilate's reigning in the very position that was ascribed to him in the Bible, meaning that he had the authority as prefect to pardon or to condemn a criminal, such as Jesus, which is completely confirmed in the Bible. That's amazing, you guys. Am I the only one who's excited about this? Okay, First century crucifixion. Problem was this. According to the Bible, Jesus was, he was crucified with nails in his hands and in his feet. And for a while, there was no nail or iron evidence that this actually happened in the first century. Right? And so skeptics and scholars totally dismissed that the gospel must be imaginative and inaccurate. Well, that changed in 1968 when a crew of builders, and I think this is crazy, accidentally uh, dug up a Jewish cemetery that contained the remains of several men, one of which was crucified. How do we know that? The iron spike was still attached into his heel bone. Typically, what happened is when Romans would, would, would um, crucify someone, they would remove the victim's iron because iron was expensive. But in this case, what's interesting, apparently the nail was too difficult to remove. That when it, that the theory is, is that when it went in, it bent the tip against some sort of knot in the wood, and the soldiers couldn't pull it out, and so they basically left it attached to the man at that time. And then the wood rotted away, and the nail remains in his bone. And now we have solid archaeological evidence that Romans did crucify in the first century with iron nails, just like the Bible said. 
More evidence, exterior evidence. I've talked about this one before, are the martyrs. Ten out of the 12 disciples were martyred, right? They were murdered for telling people about the resurrection. Judas hung himself and John didn't have to die. But think about this. If the disciples were making up the resurrection story, if this was just some big conspiracy hoax, some sort of outlandish prank, then 500 witnesses went to the grave with this. And here's the people don't die for a lie. People don't die for a lie. And especially how the early followers of Christ died. We have a good idea of how they died because of the non-biblical historical sources. Here's what they say. They say that Matthew was slain with an axe in Ethiopia. Mark was, dr was uh, drugged through the cities of Alexandria until he eventually died. Luke was hung to death in Greece. John was tortured and then banished to the island of Patmos, which he didn't actually um, get killed. James, the brother of John, was beheaded in Jerusalem. James, the younger, was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and then stoned, because apparently he didn't die from the fall. Philip was hung, on, um, hung up on a pillar and then stoned to death. Bartholomew, and oh my gosh, this one kills me, was filleted alive. Andrew was bound to a cross and then left there to die. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was first stoned, then he was beheaded. Barnabas was just stoned, <laughs> the other way of being stoned, okay? Thomas was slain by a spear in Southeast Asia. Paul was imprisoned and tortured and eventually beheaded in Rome. And Peter was crucified upside down on a cross. I'm going to tell you again, people don't die for a lie, especially if they die like that, right? And if they didn't just die for what they believe in because people die for what they believe in all the time, they died for what they saw. They saw a resurrected Christ walking on his two nail-scarred feet and hands that reached out and talked to him. And the fact that they died and they gave their life and did not confess to some made-up story means that the story was not made up. And the logical explanation is you can trust God's word because it's accurate. That's amazing, you guys. Probably the most convincing argument to me when it comes to this and its validity is life change. Truly, millions upon millions upon millions of people have dedicated their life to the God that's inside of here that's described in this book or this library of books. And it is the most compelling argument to me. How in the world was the church born out of the most powerful civilization in history and come to life and was not squashed immediately unless there was true life change from the words that were written inside of here. Millions upon millions upon millions of people have trusted in Jesus, and that's evidence, and they've done such great things. Truly, Christians have built countless hospitals and orphanages. They have started many of the world's greatest universities, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, were all started on Christian values. They launched countless, countless humanitarian efforts to help the poor. They furthered the development of great art and great music, like country music. <laughs> they invested in the world and the universe scientifically. They were the ones that first went out and started to study what God's creation was. And then they worked for the equality of men, women, and those of various skin colors. The Bible speaks to the power of God 
to affect life change. And that is evidence. And I am one of the millions upon millions upon millions that have been affected by the words inside of this book. I look to them for hope. When life is not going very well, I look for them for truth and when I want to know who God is and what he's like. I look to them for wisdom to guide me in a direction where I need to go. I look to them because as, as Jesus, as Peter said, they're the words of God himself speaking to us and the evidence is overwhelming in that. And testimony after testimony after testimony can point to the validity of this book and how it has changed our lives. Truly, it is worth building your life upon. Friends, it is a crazy book. I get it. There are things that are written in here where I'm like, how did that happen? It's, it's a crazy book. But you are not crazy to put your faith in it. You are not crazy to believe it. Bottom line, the evidence, the data, the research, the testimony, the sources are overwhelmingly support the validity of this book. You can trust the text that God has sent to us. Why? Because it's more reliable than a book. It is, it's more than a book. And it is reliable. Why? Because it's proven. And why? Because it speaks and points to truth. And the truth is God loves you and he had to tell you some way. So he sent you a text and it looks like this and you can trust it. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray.